from AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. Here's your host, Chip Lutz. Hello, friends, and welcome to LaughBox, the official podcast of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. You know, on this podcast, I got to talk to people I know, people I've met, and today I got to talk to somebody I, I've met, I've heard speak, and who is incredibly an awesome human being, you know, all the way around. I get to talk to Dr. Gina Barreca. Um, she's been on 2020, the Today Show, CNN, BBC. She's an author. She wrote, uh, uh, they used to call me Snow White, but I drifted. And, you know, today, you know, I, we're going to talk a little about her new book. If you lean in, will men just look down my, uh, look down your blouse, which as a man, that's probably true. Anyway, um, welcome Gina to Laughbox. I'm so happy to have you here. <laughs> I'm so delighted to be talking to you, Chip. It's a real honor. Thank you very much. Well, the pleasure is absolutely mine. Now, I know like, I've met you. You know, I've been through all your website. I know a little bit about how things go with you. However, you know, some of our listeners might not know you all that well. So if you could share with our listeners a little bit about you know, who you are, what you're about, what your gig is, that would be awesome. Great. Well, I always start when I talk to groups, I always start by telling them, the basics, so that especially the women who are in the audience don't have to try to guess at any math. So, um, 60 years old. We women like to know: is she older than I am? Is she younger than I am? Because the way we're brought up in our society, it's one of the essential things. It's like you know, men just want to know if you're over 18. Women want to know, you know, how old you are, so they can sort of, anybody who's too old for work study and who's too young for cremation is basically my age. I now, at 60, I'm pretty much, you know, on, on everybody's age. And uh, I weigh 153 pounds. So I'm absolutely, you know, generic, later middle-aged, early-aged lady, and I have a, a really good time in life. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, originally, which I think everybody who has ever been to New York for more than three hours can hear it in my voice, despite the fact that I've lived in Connecticut for 30 years. Um, my day job is to teach English literature, uh, Victorian literature, modern British literature, creative writing, feminist theory at the University of Connecticut in Storrs, Connecticut, which is basically in the woods, which is really far from growing up, you know, in Brooklyn, New York, and on Long Island. Um, and, but I, you know, moved from me, husband and I live um, on a couple of acres out here in the woods. And uh, my friends from New York and my brother, who still lives in Brooklyn, you know, bring us food in a cooler from the city. Like we live in Ice Station Zebra. Mm -hmm. Because we really still can't get like good bagels or really good locks or anything like that, but um, you know it's great. And I've been I've been teaching. Um, I write a column that's now syndicated, put out in Tribune newspapers. Um, by I write for the Hartford Current, uh, where it first appears every week, every Friday, and it's available on my website, which is ginabreca.com. You're very kind to say you've been through it. And I do a lot of stuff about gender difference in humor. That's really my focus. And I think that's what I was talking about when you first heard me at the National Speakers Association. Well, I think it's funny that you said that men just want to know you're over 18 and women just want to know, men just want to know how old you are if you're younger than they are. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> 
it's true. It is true. Are you? Are you? We have a very a different like, attitude. It's a man. I'm like, are you 18? All right, good. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. is, that is really funny. Yeah, right. now, I have a conversation. Women are like, are you over a size 18? Yeah. <laughs> I have a theory on age. See, I'm a firm believer in telling people I'm older than I really am simply because I want them to think I look really good for my age. Because if I tell them I'm like, because I'm 50, if I tell them I'm 55 and they're like, oh man, you look great for 55, and I'm like, yeah. But if I tell them I'm like 45 and like, holy crap, you look like hell. What have you done? I mean, you've lived a hard life. You know, I, I think there's, you know, a big thing, a big disparity there. I'm like, I, it's like, I would rather look better for an age that I'm not than look too old for age that I'm not. Does that make sense? Well, you know, it was interesting turning 60. I wrote about this recently because I um, went to my and before I actually hit 60, the very young person behind the counter said, well, you know, it's two twenty-five with the senior discount or something. And I was about to say, I don't actually qualify. And I thought, who am I to tell her? I don't qualify. She didn't ask me how old I am. She wants to give me the senior discount. I have gray hair. You know, I'm, like my hair is, is sort of streaked with gray so that I'm across between Elvira, Queen of the Night, and Pepe Le Pew, you know, and it, it depends on the day. And so she wants to give me the senior discount. And then I went outside and a friend in the car and she said, you know, what do you mean you got the senior discount? You don't count. And I actually then called the Dunkin' Donuts headquarters and asked what counts. And they said, it's up to the manager's discretion. So I thought, okay, they said in some places it's like 50. Some, I, I, I think that they just felt bad for me that day. Maybe I went in, I was looking a little sad. I needed the coffee, but you know, you go in looking old. There were some advantages to looking old, Chip. So you just go in and say, you know, I'm I'm actually 117, and I just put on, you know, the good makeup today, and I'm wearing I'm wearing a highlighter, and I can, you know, just please give me the senior discount. I mean, whatever it is. For me, we were fighting over whether I could get the senior discount, and I'm trying to think, why am I arguing to pay more money? You know, what sense of vanity is forcing me to do this? But we were talking before we started um, recording this, you know, about humor in everyday life. And I think you and I would both agree that the real humor in everyday life is what you find. It's yeah. not what you invent, but it's just making light, literally, you know, letting the light into your life. It's what the people at uh, the AP show that it's, it's the found humor that's the real humor. It's the stories, not the jokes, that really make a difference in our lives, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I'll, I'm glad that you brought that up because I know that in your new book, um, you talked about how you've always been a storyteller. That, and, and then I love how you put it that, you know, that in your family, they would say, you have to make everything a story. And in that, and then you put that, that just means you had a big mouth. But, you know, I think stories, I mean, they're the bedrock of civilization. It's how we transmit. Yeah, everything. that's right. <laughs> you know, it's seriously, and it's how we transmit everything, norms, culture, that's everything. Right. That, and if you can put everything in a story that, you know, that helps people understand things and they can put themselves in that story. I mean, how did you start in the whole kind of storytelling business, you know, that's, you know, within the, within the confines of that, you know, within your family? 
Well, uh, thank you for asking. Um, uh, I really think that uh, the first part of learning how to tell a story is to listen really carefully to what other people say. And the intriguing part of any story is always going to be in the details. It's going to be in the little tiny uh, corners of the story. It's like looking at a really good painting or a fine piece of woodwork or eating a delicious meal. It's, it's not only, you know, the big flavors or the big colors. It's, it's in the small, tiny brushwork and in the, the way the corners fit together. And so as a kid, I just listened to my immediate family, which like 117, you know, and listen to the nuances of how one aunt would tell about what this one of her brothers did, but the other aunt would tell the story this way, and I would be comparing those two things. And just like sitting under the kitchen table, you know, and and trying to sort of hide myself away, but being able to listen to everybody and looking at the patterns of the carpet under the table, and um, and and trying to remember as hard as I could. And then as soon as I could write, I started like just keeping little tiny notebooks. I think a lot of kids do. Uh, but I really kept mine carefully. I wrote down as much stuff as I could. And, and I don't think that meant I thought I was going to be a writer. I never thought I was going to be a writer. I, you know, I always knew I was going to need to make a living. Um, which still, I, you know, I have a day job, as I said. I really, <laughs> the first thing when I have students who come in and say, I want to be a writer, and I said, that's great. How are you going to make your rent? What are you going to do to make a living? Figure that out, and then we could talk about what you want to write, because, yeah. you know, Stephen King and four other people living or living as a writer. It's not something you do to, you know, to put food on the table. All right. I think I'm hungry. I keep talking about food. And, um, <laughs> So, you know, so seeing the stories and then as um, I, I did, uh, I edited a collection called uh, Don't Tell Mama, the Penguin Book of Italian-American Writing. And I wrote the introduction and my brother wrote a rebuttal to my introduction, which when Publishers Weekly reviewed the book said, we've never seen this. We've never seen a family member rebut an introduction, you know, by like a scholar. That is but so my funny. brother said, you know, Gina talks about all these stories that Italian-Americans, yeah, I mean, but he said, you know, she thinks of herself as part of a storytelling tradition, but we never told Gina or any of the women in the family anything. My brother <laughs> believes that there is an entirely different storytelling tradition among men than there is among women, and that men's storytelling tradition is based on making stuff up to disguise the truth. And that women's storytelling tradition is based on discovering all of those little details that will uncover the actual truth that men have been spending all of that time trying to disguise. So, I, I mean, I think it's a really, you know, interesting sort of concept. But even, you know, the critics who were looking at this book were like, this must be one heck of a family because this isn't how this stuff usually works. So we always told stories. And I think that when you grow up poor and, um, you know, there's a big family, there's a lot of storytelling that goes on. There's just, oh, yeah. it's, it's um, humor. You know, I would ma I've made the argument, um, you know, I think that humor 
when you come from families that are pretty hard scrabble, you're going to hear a lot more laughter out of those neighborhoods than in the fancy neighborhoods. I agree with that. Your brother sounds like my kind of guy. I, I, cause I under, I completely understand where he's coming from. Yeah. <laughs> I, I completely understand where he's coming from. But I'm going to certainly tell a story that's going to sound a lot better than it really is. And that in thinking about like, I'm the youngest of six kids. Um, I have four brothers, one sister and, um, her, her stories are a tad bit different than all of ours. Just a little bit different. So that, that completely makes sense to me. Yeah. So in, in looking at. Mm -hmm. You would all be writing the rebuttal. Right. <laughs> yeah, I would be. Absolutely. So how did humor become kind of a, I don't want to say a discipline for you, but it, was it just a naturally um, part of who you are and an immersion of, you know, how you do, you know, how you do things and how you write? Because certainly, I mean, you know, you're one of the funniest people I've ever heard speak. I mean, you are, you are hilarious and your writing is, is hilarious as well. I mean, is it just a part of your, of your DNA of how you, you know, how you do things? Well, again, that's very kind of you. Um, actually, I, I, it took me, uh, quite a while, I would say, until I was really in my, you know, early 30s. You know, when I first, when I did the first book, they used to call me Snow White, but I drifted, um, which came out of, of all things, a very serious dissertation uh, that I did for, you know, getting my, my PhD uh, on anger and humor in women's novels in the 20th century. And um, that. I can tell you that was not a funny book. It was a very scholarly book. And I didn't trust myself. I could, I knew, you know, I, again, just growing up in a family where, and in a neighborhood where you weren't funny, somebody would smack you on the back of the head. Um, but the, the idea was that, you know, once I got to school, I felt like I had to take myself seriously. Otherwise nobody else would take me seriously. And, um, and it took me sort of growing into my pause and becoming more confident. And that's what I try to encourage in my students and in the writers, whatever age they are, who are trying to sort of capture their senses of humor. It's like trying to, you know, get sometimes it's like trying to capture a butterfly inside a jam jar, you know, um, <laughs> like I said, these little bits of light, they, right. they sort of fly by and, you know, it's it's tough, um, and because they take the light with them. But these these brilliant moments, and but sometimes they seem so frivolous. And what I remember sort of realizing is that just because something is frivolous doesn't mean it has to be trivial. You know, because yeah. you you it's not that somehow tragedy or sorrow are more important than laughter or joy. And somehow we've been taught culturally to believe that they are. That it's sort of, you know, cheaper and easier to get a laugh. And I don't think that's true. I think in writing or on the stage or in a movie, you know, I think it's, it's easier to make. I will cry at toilet paper commercials if they're done right, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, if there is. If there's an ad, or God forbid, there's an ad from like the ASPCA or the Humane Society, With Sarah McLaughlin or something like that. I mean, I'm bursting here. I mean, yeah. <laughs> 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 it's tough. 
I mean, you, we all know, you know, those buttons are, are really easy to push. You know, we can get sentimental immediately. And um, I think it's harder to make people laugh because you sort of have to do a little bit, unless you're just telling fart jokes, and I know there's a place for those, especially in the lives of, of men and boys, that's considered, you know, like Aristophanes. Well, you know, I will tell you this. That is but, because, um, like, if you're that is because men are perpetually like five years old. That, you know, farts, yes, and right. farts and anything doing with like, you know, feces is always funny to us. It just, it just is. Sorry. Right. I had to like throw that yeah, out there. Yeah, no, it's like anyway. your fontanelles have never closed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, Ted, your fontanelles have never closed. You are still somehow. This is like we have to be careful we don't drop you. It's exactly. just amazing. And um but yes, but for for nothing wrong with that. But um but for women or for some men it's a little bit different. And um we're well, not just you know, blowing raspberries, but you're you're trying to do something with words. But you have to do a little somersault to get a joke. Yeah. You have to know what the funny part is. You have to make a connection. And and sometimes I think, I mean, certainly I was um, intimidated. You know, you're, you're always afraid that if you tell a funny story um, that somebody won't laugh. And I always say, if you know, you take the risk and the sort of leadership. I know you talk about leadership. That's what you're known for. But you take a position of leadership and you tell what you know is a funny story that if somebody doesn't laugh, what you haven't done is make a mistake. What you've done is to make a good beginning. Right. You know, what you've done is to start a conversation where there can be something that, that has room for laughter yeah. in it. And, um, and that it, it, it to, to say that you're taking something with humor doesn't mean you're not taking it seriously. Um, and you know, it's not, it's not a contradiction. Um, and some of the, you know, some of the most interesting, uh, you know, funny books, you know, if we go back to the, the great humorists that we think of, you know, Mark Twain or Dorothy Parker or Robert Benchley or Dave Barry or Anita Luce or Nora Ephron, we look at these writers and we know that there were, there are moments when they can get very serious, even in a funny story. Right. You know, we'll be laughing, but then it's like they will come up with a line that's like a stiletto, and it'll go right to your heart um, because they're so good at what they do. And and yet, again, that they won't let you fall. They'll hold you, but they make a real point. And I think that that's, you know, that's, that's a moment of, of – fabulous creativity that I think everybody who wants to deal with humor is always trying to get get to, you know, use as as a goal in terms of the way we, we deal with humor, to handle the most difficult situations with humor and yet with compassion and with tenderness and with intelligence. Right. And I think something you hit on there that there is what makes things sometimes so funny when people lay it out there is that um, there's so much truth in real humor that, you know, that the more, uh, how do I put it, the, 
the more honest things are, the more people can uh, identify with it, which makes it kind of universal, which like, yeah, I've done that too. And then they, they see it in themselves and they, they can't help but laugh. Yeah. I, well, it's, it is, you know, when I, I do workshops or talk to groups and, and try, you know, when people are interested in finding their own senses of humor or using humor at work or in their daily lives or their writing, and um, it's all about, uh, again, finding the, the most honest way to talk about what's happened right. and never to speak generically. Humor is never generic. It's always specific. Right. So that um, when in one of the essays in, in the new book, I talk about when my husband and I were driving across the country and um, we stopped in a small town somewhere where we weren't expecting to stop the you know, it was getting dark and the weather was coming in and we were on the West Coast. And um, so he said we should stop at this you know, very small town, it's uh, a sort of no-name hotel. And, uh, and there was like no cars in the parking lot. It was a Sunday night. And we thought, well, you know, maybe it's just it's the off season. You know, we're not going to worry about this. And, and we stop and, uh, you know, my job is to get, get Things settled in the room, and he was going to go out and forage for food. You know, come back with something <laughs> takeaway. And so I'm going into the room, and there is, there is, it is the scariest room I've seen since the Bates Hotel. You know, there's like a shag orange rug that's been there since 1972, and twin beds covered with like shiny polyester paisley bedspreads and an air conditioner that sounds like an aircraft carrier coming in that's not working properly. There's no closet. There's just like a little rack, a corner to hang some stuff on. Nice. Um, no little cups. You know, usually there are plastic cups, right? No cups, yeah. not one, not one cup anywhere. No glass, no plastic. And the, the piesters, the songs, was there were clown prints, like the sad clown. Oh, my God. But they were bolted to the wall. Okay? <laughs> so that you know, yeah, so that, you know, former patrons had, like, taken them home. And, you know, they weren't going to let that happen again. So they were bolted. You could go bolt. They were screwed to the wall. So I am sitting on the edge of this nylon twin bed drinking wine out of the bottle, right? Because there were no glasses. My husband comes home, back to the room, home. He comes back to the room, and has a little bag. It doesn't look like there's a lot of food. We're both good eaters. And he says, well, the only thing I could get was potato salad. I said, what are you talking about? We've been on the road for eight hours. He said, well, there was only one deli. It was closing, and I didn't like the look of the meat. I was like... You got us one pound of potato salad to eat. And I said, that's it. And so we're sitting on the two twin beds looking at the bozo prints, passing the bottle of wine back and forth between us. And he opens the potato salad. And I said, you get a knife and fork? You get us two forks? He said, I forgot. I said, what are we going to do? He said, and I swear to God, I can't make this up. He said, I have a shoehorn. <laughs> so we are sitting in this motel eating potato salad with a shoe. I mean, and I thought, like, if I had seen a photograph of myself at, like, age 50 
sitting in a dive motel, looking at a sad clown print, eating potato salad out of a plastic container with a shoehorn while drinking cheap wine out of a bottle. I would not have worked so hard in college, you know? I wouldn't have said, well, that's the future I'm looking forward to, you know? This is really, <laughs> that is not a snapshot I put on Facebook, okay? <laughs> that's not one of those great memories. But that's what real life, and then when we left the next morning, um, you know, we left early. We didn't decide to lounge around the room. Um, so we left until it dawn. And, um, and we drove past these acres and acres of orchids. And I'd never seen orchids in a field. I mean, they were glorious. It was amazing. I think we were in Washington State or in Oregon. And I mean, it was just astonishing. And if we had kept driving at night to get to a better motel, we would never have seen that right. in the morning, you know? I mean, it was just like life is a riot, but you have to look at it. You have to see what it hands you, even when it hands you like the clown print. You have to figure there's going to be like down the road, there's going to be an orchid, you know? There's going to be something that makes up for it. And, <laughs> and that, that's what makes a riot wild. That is a, a great metaphor that somewhere down the road, there's an orchid that... <laughs> That is awesome. And I love the fact that like, I'm counting I, on it. I think about some things in my life like that too. Like if I had seen this 20 years ago, I never would have done this. Like I see myself sitting in a crappy motel yep. room, eating potato salad with a shoehorn. Look, the picture I have in my head is absolutely hilarious. Um, yeah. That is great stuff. That is awesome. Well, but that's, and, it, and again, it's the idea what, well, but the idea of, you know, that being a funny story, because everybody's been in this situation. I doubt whether many people, I hope that not many other people have been forced to eat containers of food with a shore. Um, there may be some, but I think that everybody's been in a situation where you're thinking, man, I don't know how I got here, you know, but right. boy, this is not where, like, if my friends could see me now, this is the opposite of that. And so, but everybody's got a version. So when I, that first, that story is in the book and when it first came out as a column, I heard from so many people who were like, ah, you know what happened to me? And they told their version of that story. Right. And it was great because, you know, so once again, it's like once you get started, people then feel free. You know, it sort of, it, it like undoes the code or something. And everybody unlocks their cases and starts to take out their stories. And it's great. I mean, it just, you know, it's like confetti or something. Everybody's cheering and throwing up colored paper. It's really, you know, it's, it's just a lot more fun when you it's, make a funny story out of it. But it's in the details. And it's in, just as you said before, you know, earlier, it's, it's in the honesty. And it's in, you know, telling the truth about life. And then right. other people will too. Yeah, well, and the way you explain it, it kind of it dif it diffuses the tension and kind of reduces ego a little bit. You know that story right there. Like if I'm thinking, like, uh, you know, if I had never met you before, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, I'm meeting Gina Barreca, and you know, she's written all these books. She's you know up here, and then you share that story. It's like, hey, she's just like me. You know, I've had this as well. It reduces it, it puts us on almost on. Say, <laughs> We're all the same. 
puts us almost like on. Well, we know. really do. I mean, we all have, have so much more in common. You know, then we do that. What separates us? I mean, politics or ideologies or you know whatever you know the big issues are, especially in the world today. That it seems so we're so eager to find out what divides us. One of the great things about humor is that if you're laughing with somebody, um, you're really close to that person. You know, for that moment, you're genuinely sharing something, and that that real kind of intimacy you know that's that's better than the fake air kiss you know that's realer than a lot of shows of other kinds of of you know fake affection or you know um uh sort of assumed um uh sort of you know just the, the, the people show is affectation. I mean, that this is really, when you're really laughing, if you can really let go of somebody and really laugh, I mean, that's a, a connection between human beings that's really fundamental. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that people understand why, you know, laughter, that the humor really is therapeutic, why humor is so important. And it's so essential in our lives. I mean, a day that we've laughed is a day we haven't wasted. Even if we've done nothing else that day, but if you have left and you can make somebody else laugh, that's a day that you can count as, as one that's been spent, you know, to put to good use. Right. Oh, I agree with that. Absolutely. That there are a lot of days I might not do anything, but if I can make, you know, my life, like every day I have four kids, I'll send them something funny just so I can lighten their, lighten their moods a little bit. Cause uh -huh. I know that they're in their early twenties and they're taking stuff way too seriously. <laughs> way too seriously because yeah. in, 30 years, in 30 years they're going to be in a in a hotel room with orange shag carpet eating eating potato salad out of the shoe <laughs> if they're lucky if they're if they're lucky yes if they're lucky <laughs> I have a good life. <laughs> no, but it's true. And I think it does, you know, we we understand as we get older uh, just how important humor really is because humor is about perspective. And so it allows us to see things in, you know, from a different angle. And you can look at something. I won't go so far as to say 360 degrees, but you could see something Maybe, you know, more in three dimensions or something. It, it's the world can seem so scary and black and white and, um, you know, the horizon seems so bleak when you're, I think, because you don't have anything to compare it to. Right. And then experiences in life start to repeat themselves. And we know that's one of the things that's funny. It's funny. So, you know, the first time you get your heart broken, you think this is, you know, this is it. Life will never go on. All of time will stop, you know. And then, you know, if you get your heart broken again, God forbid, but you get your heart broken enough times, you know, you're starting to sing country songs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you're, really, you're, you know, you're, you're, you know. I mean, it's it's why country music exists is because there's there's repetition of these things and you repeat something often enough, it becomes funny. Uh, um, and oh because you goodness. do, because you get perspective on it, because All you right. realize that you're,
you're not unique and it's not the only time this is going to happen. And you realize that there's, um, you know, when you're, again, I, I work with, you know, students with young people all the time and um, there's a great, there's such a great fear of being humiliated when you're young, right? It's the thing that you're terrified of, that right. somebody's going to humiliate you. And I think as we get older, um, that we replace the fear of humiliation with an embrace of humility. Um, we, you know, it's a virtue. <laughs> and we start to realize, as we were just saying before, how much like each other we are. Right. You know, that we're not in our own individual universes, but boy, we're all in this together. And we better find a common cause and we better, you know, get together on this stuff. We better find out what we know and like about each other and how we can pool our interests. And, um, and that there's a great relief in actually understanding that we have so much in common. Uh, but I think that that's something that's, you know, that's part of, of getting older, part of growing up, certainly. And um, that embrace of humility is something that I think leads to a much uh, more uh, generous sense of the world. And the sense of generosity is what makes humor um, a lot easier to create and a lot easier to enjoy, to access, to find, to discover, you know, whatever one, one of those words, you know, in life's buffet, we can, you know, fill our plates with that. Right. I, I love how you, you, you put all that because it is a much different perspective looking back than looking forward. Um, that looking back, it's like, you know, there are things that yeah. are much funnier now than when I was going through them and looking forward, it's like, ah, you know what? It, it's not going to be that, yeah. it's not going to be that big a deal. You know, it's, we'll, we'll find the humor in it. We can find the humor in it. We can find yeah. learning in it and we'll just move forward. Now I want to shift gears just real quick. Cause I want to make sure we talk a little bit about, um, your new book. Um, cause a, uh, just like I said, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. I've you know been able to go through some of it, but you know, what I've read has just been freaking hilarious to me. What spurred you to put this together? Your new book. <laughs> Uh, the new book, if you lean in, well, men just look down your blouse. It's um, Questions and Thoughts for Loud, Smart Women in Turbulent Times. It's published by St. Martin's Press, and they also did the one previous to this, which was called It's Not That I'm Bitter. And um, there, uh, many of the pieces that have started out as columns, so they're divided into sections. So you can look at this section that's called um, I'm Not Needy, I'm Wanty, for example, <laughs> because women are always you know, apologizing every time we want something. It's like, oh, I don't mean to do that. I don't mean, it's like, stop apologizing. Just say, I want this. I just, it's not that I need, oh, I need you to do that. Like, you know, women's voices go up so high that only bats can hear them and it's not an effective rhetorical strategy. Right. And um, so that being able to say, look, I'm a human being. This is the stuff that I want in life. This is what makes me happy. This is what I enjoy. Can I have some more of this, please? You know, I'd like a little less of this. No, please don't make sucky teeth, tricky noises at me on the street. It does not make me feel good about how I look. I just see this as flattering. You know, it's hard to get ahead in the world if you're always looking over your shoulder. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is, is advice. Um, you know, for uh, the young women that I work with, stuff that there are essays of uh, about what I do feel that I've learned, what I wish I could go back and say to my younger self. 
Um, there are essays about, um, there are some serious ones about uh, the end of my father's life. Um, I wanted to write about what it was like to have and to deal with a parent who, again, had a great sense of humor, my father. And um, but he died. He had uh, cancer, epilepsy, and Parkinson's, which he referred to as the trifecta. And it, But even to the end of his life, and this is a guy who had been on a B-24 Liberator bomber in World War II as a waste gunner and a radio man, flew 36 missions, and, um, you know, had not had an easy time in his life. You know, let, neither of my parents graduated from high school. You know, their, uh, their, what humor they had in their life, they made themselves. You know, what times we had with stuff that they created. And, um, but even at the end of his life, even miserable illnesses, I remember at one point he broke his elbow. He lived in New York trying to open a window. And because he was pretty frail. And so we had to take him into the hospital. We were waiting for the ambulance, my brother and I. And, so the ambulance comes, and in New York City, they have to ask you what hospital do you want to go to. So this nice uh, EMT, this woman, young woman, was there with my father loading him in. We're there, and she goes, okay, Mr. Baraka, where do you want to go? And he looks at her and says, there's a club on 92nd Street I think you'd like. <laughs> my father is like sexually harassing the EMT. He's 84. He's got the trifecta. They're loading him in with a broken arm. He's trying to pick this broad up, you know, and she's laughing and he's in incredible pain. I know he's trying to pay. And still, the first thing out of it is when she says, Where do you want to go? Is a club on 92nd Street. And I'm thinking, you know, I really, that's it. There are worse ways to go. And that's the last thing, you know, you're going to say within two weeks of your demise. So, um, so that, that was always there. So there are essays about him. There are essays um, about, uh, about going to the shrine, having panic attacks, because when I was younger, I used to have these sort of panic attacks, like probably about how I learned to control them, about inviting humor into your life, 19 rules about things you have to do every day. So um, so I put these together um, in a way that I felt like most people don't sit down and read a book all the way through. I can. That's the luxury of my job. But people usually read. They keep a book, you know, next to their bedside. They read it in the car while they're waiting to pick their kids up from school. They read it while they're traveling. They read it, you know, uh, for 15 minutes of having a cup of coffee. And so these pieces are short enough that you could do that, but you know, you could skip around. It's, um, it's, a, it's a book I hope that people will read and nod and go, oh, yeah, that happened to me. I know that. That, that was, you know, that there'll be something that people recognize. That would be, that's the great honor for me is when people say, ah, oh, I get that. Well, when I was reading it, I, it, it, reading the sections, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds just like my family. I, I, I completely identified with a lot of stuff that you're putting in <laughs> that you were writing about. So I completely agree with that. So, you know, if you, one person out there, you've at, you reached me. I'm sure you've reached thousands of other people. But, you know, since we're talking, I'll tell you that, you know, you hit me as well. So that was it, it, it's. Um, it's it, it's Thank good you. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's like anything anything that we put out there, we we're hoping that somebody reads it and, and somebody gives us some kind of validation. I'm when I write something and somebody yeah. says that they read it, I'm like, I'm just happy they read it. 
posts. Thank you. Thank you for reading what I wrote. Um, right. I don't, I don't care if you right. like it or not. I'm just happy that you took the time. Thank you very right. much. Right. <laughs> um, I will have to uh, have you on for The column that I, I just wrote is exactly about this. I talked about when people write back and they're angry. And I'm just like so excited to get a response from somebody. It's like, oh, thank you so much for taking the time to read. I'm sorry <laughs> that, you know, you think I, I shouldn't be allowed to roam the earth. But I'm so grateful that I appeared in your local paper. You know, it's, just, it's great. No, it's been great talking to you, Chip. It's always fun. We always have a good time, and we yeah. laugh at each other, which is a good thing. Yeah, well, I mean, and we'll have to, you know, do a second segment where we can talk about because I'm really um, we didn't talk about it now, and we're we're coming up on time, but I, I really want to talk about um, if we can have a second segment where we talk about the difference between you know male and female senses of humor because I think that there is a much different you know uh, perspective on what we find funny and. Um, what we don't find funny, like I will freely admit that my humor is very sophomoric and I do find poop and anything dealing with, you know, it with, with the anus hilarious. However, my wife does not. So I, 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 I would. That's, yes, that's absolutely right. Yes, we could do a whole segment on that. Half of which <laughs> will, your audience will not, half of your audience will listen to, and the other half, the other four will listen to. Well, well, <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Well, well, it does you, work that way, though. Yeah, yes, I'd be delighted to come back on and have another well, conversation. When we do that one, we'll, we'll let you do most of the talking then because I don't want to get myself in trouble. So uh, after today, um, our. You can make noises. <laughs> if after today people want to find you, where do they go? Uh, they can come to GinaBarek.com, and that's G-I-N-A-B-A-R-R-E-C-A.com. And they can find me on Facebook and on Instagram and a little bit on Twitter. Um, and, they, you know, their books are in the bookstores. They're in Amazon. They're in – but your local independent bookstore is really where you want to go. And um, – and I, I write back, as you already know, I write back if you write to me. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not elusive. I am easy to find. Well, I appreciate you spending time with me today. I've really had a, a lot of fun. I've enjoyed talking to you, and I can't wait to, uh, wait to read the rest of your book, and hopefully we can talk a little bit about that later. Okay, sounds good. We'll make a date. We'll make a date. Well, thanks again, Gina. And for those of you listening, um, make sure you take out, uh, check out Gina's website um, and uh, buy the book. If you lean in, will men just look down your blouse? All right. Thanks, Gina. Thank you. This is Laughbox, <laughs> the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. Laughbox is made possible by a grant from the National Speakers Foundation and is brought to you by AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Find out more at aath.org. Be sure to review Laughbox on iTunes. For show notes and more information about today's conversation, visit laughbox.aath.org.